This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Sleep hot. Mattress Firm's sleep experts can match you with a cooling mattress from the Temper Breeze Collection from Tempur-Pedic, so you can experience measurably cooler sleep all night. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day Sale. Sleep at night. You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Lori Lizarraga. Growing up in Texas, in the Lizarraga household, there were a lot of us under one roof. Me and my four siblings, our parents, even Mama Inelda, my abuela, for a while. So you can imagine, quarters were tight, and privacy was sort of novel. Some might even call it crowded or codependent as we got older. But that was our family. Your business is my business. And because my parents started having us all so young, we grew up sort of knowing their stories. The shenanigans they got into as kids, how they met in high school, what Mama Inelda first thought of my mom when my dad brought her home, becoming parents before they could legally drink. Stories that I guess made my parents more than just my parents from a really early age. It's like that, right? When a parent tells you something about their experiences, something they've done, somewhere they've been, choices they've made, it makes them, I don't know, more of a real person somehow. More lived, more learned, spontaneous, even a little wild. And if you're not used to it, that can be kind of weird. Especially because the stories often drop when you least expect them. So when I was listening to Vivian Yoon on a podcast that explores the history of K-pop, I didn't expect one of those moments with her parents to be part of the story. And neither did she. So today on the show, we're sharing an episode from the LAist podcast, California Love. And while reporting out this particular episode on the origin story of K-pop in South Korea, Vivian Yoon learns that her parents, before they were her parents, or even a couple, met at one of the spots where K-pop began. And she had no idea before reporting this story. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we even get there, we have to go back in time to meet one of the OGs of K-pop. Here's Vivian. When people talk about the origins of K-pop, they often start with someone named Seotaeji. Seotaeji is the iconic stage name of Jung Hyun-chol, the lead singer, rapper, and overall mastermind of a group called Seotaeji and Boys. And it's hard to overstate the impact this group had on Korean music and culture. Before Seotaeji and Boys, Popular Korean music mostly consisted of trot songs or ballads, like this song called Like the Love Spread Around the World by Lee Seung Hwan. Then in 1992, Sataji and Boys exploded onto the scene with this song. The song is called Nan Arayo, or I Know, and it was completely different from anything in South Korea at the time. It combined hip-hop, rock, and pop with elements of Korean music in this way that was so unfamiliar and new. And this song debuted on national TV as part of a competition show called Tukjong TV Yone, which is roughly translated to Scoop TV Entertainment. 
There are actually clips of this performance online, and you can see Seo Taeji with the two other members of the group, Yang Hyun Seok, also known as YG, and Lee Juno. The three of them did this stylized, choreographed hip-hop dance routine while they sang and rapped. And the judges didn't really like it. They thought the melody was weak and didn't love the rapping. And Sotaji and boys actually got the lowest score of the whole night. But the teens watching at home... They were obsessed. The song skyrocketed to number one and stayed there for 17 weeks. Young people loved everything about Sotaji and boys. Their sound was experimental and bold. Like, Sotaji didn't just make rap and hip-hop popular in South Korea, but he also incorporated things like heavy metal into his music too. And the group was really fashion-forward. They popularized the baggy snowboarder aesthetic in Korea and experimented with different styles. And Sotaji's music often contained social commentary that resonated with a lot of young people. For a lot of teens, Sotaji represented youth rebellion and culture, and the group developed an intensely dedicated fan base. Teens started following Sotaji's every move and even camped outside of his house just to get a glimpse of him, which was a first for Korea. Fan culture had existed, but it was nowhere near this level. So this is where a lot of stories about the beginnings of K-pop start, with Sotajian boys, who established a lot of the early foundational elements of K-pop. Dance, fashion, fandom, youth culture. But what a lot of these stories don't tell you is that Sotajian boys were part of a burgeoning hip-hop dance scene in Seoul. And the group hung out at this one nightclub in particular, where all the best hip-hop dancers in Korea gathered to practice their craft and learn new moves coming from the U.S. And this club was home to a ton of other future K-pop legends, people who would go on to become architects and shapers of 90s K-pop. But here's the thing about this nightclub. It wasn't meant for Koreans. It was actually a spot for Black American GIs who were stationed in Seoul. And Korean locals just wound up going there. So how did this happen? How did an underground hip-hop club in Seoul created for Black American soldiers end up becoming the nexus of so many K-pop legends? From LAist Studios, this is K-pop Dreaming. I'm Vivian Yoon, and in this episode, we'll go back to 1980 Seoul to visit a club called Moon Night. We'll explore the nightclub and the neighborhood it was in to discover how the American military presence in South Korea wound up shaping the genre of K-pop. And I'll learn about an unlikely connection forged in that same neighborhood between a young Korean woman and a Korean-American soldier stationed far from home, a.k.a. my parents. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. 
Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. It's the summer of 1989 a muggy Friday night in Seoul, Korea. You're walking down the main street of a district called Itaewon. The neighborhood is packed with American GIs in search of burgers and go-go bars. Giant neon signs are everywhere saying things like Disco Emerald, Disco Trek, King Club. You keep walking past the red light district the GIs call Hooker Hill. Down an alleyway nearby... Someone sells jars of mayo and other smuggled goods from the army base. Finally, you reach it. A set of stairs leading down into a basement to a hip-hop dance club called Moon Knight. The club was actually called Moon, as in Moon Nightclub. But the Korean locals who went there shortened the name to Moon Knight. And this was where Sotejian boys went to immerse themselves in hip-hop music, dance, and culture. Things that would show up in their music and fashion. This is K-pop legend Kang won And he remembers seeing Soteji at Moon Knight. From this point on, I'm going to refer to Kang won by his last name, Kang. He said it's okay. So, Kang is most known for being part of an influential K-pop duo from the 90s called Klon. But he actually got his start as a member of a hip-hop group called Hyunjinyoung and Wawa, who actually debuted before Sotejian Boys, but weren't as big. Kang says when he first started going to Moon Knight, the only Koreans at the club were him, Hyunjinyoung, and the club's employees— all the other patrons were off-duty Black American soldiers. 
들어가기 전에 일단 베이스미 붕붕붕붕 울려요. Kang says Moon Knight was underground. And before you entered the club, you could hear the boom 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 of the bass. 거기 앞에 그런 덩치 큰 친구들이 한두명 있어요. He says the entrance was guarded by two huge bouncers. And it was tough for Korean locals to get in unless they knew somebody. And Kang, he knew somebody. The club's Korean owner named Cowboy. Cowboy 모자를 자주 쓰고 Cowboy 신발을 자주 신어가지고 그러면 그 사람이 어 원래 왔어? 들어가 그러면 비켜줘요 우리를. Kang says that Cowboy often wore a cowboy hat and boots. And as soon as Cowboy greeted Kang, the bouncer stepped aside to let him in. Inside, the tiny club was hot and filled with cigarette smoke. And the checkerboard dance floor was full of people dancing to hip-hop, rap, and new jack swing. The club even played gangster rap like this song, Easy Does It by Easy e Well, I'm Easy e I got bitches galore. You ain't have a lot of bitches, but I got much more. With my super-duper group coming out to shoot. Easy e I'm cold knocking the boots, cause I'm a Gangster rap, Easy Does It, 뭐 그런 노래가 나오면 모든 그 클럽 안에 있는 흑인들이 그 노래를 다 따라 불렀어요. Kang says when songs like this one came on, all the black soldiers in the club sang along to the lyrics. And it was the first time he had seen anything like this. A whole crowd of people rapping along to a hip-hop song. And when songs by Bobby Brown, MC Hammer, or Heavy D came on, everyone in the club would do this one dance move that Koreans called the bunny dance. Which we know as the running man. The club got hot quick, and on the dance floor between two large speakers was a giant electric fan. King says there was only one air conditioner in the corner of the club, and the fan brought cool air from the AC to the dance floor. According to Kang, only the best dancers were allowed to stand in front of that fan. So Kang worked on his skills, perfecting them in front of the mirrors lining the club's walls. Until finally, he made his way to that spot in front of the fan. Kang says the Korean dancers didn't just mingle with black GIs at moon night. The soldiers actually taught the locals how to dance and do moves like the running man. And it made me wonder, how did a place like this even come to exist? It turns out the answer is tied to the area the club was in, Itaewon. So Itaewon is this neighborhood in Seoul, and the thing that set Itaewon apart for a long time was the giant military base next door. In the last episode, we talked about how after World War II, the U.S. military stationed itself in South Korea and then never left. Well, in 1945, the U.S. military established its headquarters in Seoul at the very same place that served as the headquarters for the Imperial Japanese Army during colonization, a place that was eventually called Yongsan Garrison. After settling at its new headquarters at Yongsan, the U.S. just kept amassing more troops. At one point in the 1950s, there were 300,000 American soldiers stationed all across South Korea. And Yongsan Garrison was right next to Itaewon. So from the 1950s onward, the neighborhood developed into an area that catered to American soldiers. 
It provided entertainment and leisure, bars, restaurants, even shopping for GIs. And Itaewon began to develop a reputation among the Korean locals. There was this idea that if you're a proper Korean, you don't go there. There was just too much danger. This is Jungmin Mina Lee, a musicologist at Duke University. We heard from her in the last episode. According to Mina, Itaewon had a stigma attached to it because the area was kind of lawless compared to the rest of the country. There were drug-related crimes and arrests happened there. And also, many women went there for illegal prostitution. I would say, like, a pursuit of pleasure was what dominated that area. So most Koreans avoided Itaewon which let it evolve into its own little world that catered to American soldiers. And by the 1980s, influenced by the racial climate within the U.S. Army, Itaewon became somewhat self-segregated, and it was divided along the neighborhood's main street with mostly white establishments to the north and black establishments to the south. And some bars on clubs on either side adopted themes, like you could have a country western bar or a classic rock bar. And Moon Knight was one of these themed clubs. It was a spot for Black GIs to listen to music from the States like hip-hop, rap, and New Jack Swing. When I first learned about Itaewon's history, I reached out to my mom, who had grown up in Korea, to see if she knew what the neighborhood was like in the 80s. She said she didn't remember much, just that most Koreans avoided the area. So that was kind of a dead end. But then I remembered... My dad had been stationed in South Korea in the 1980s. Remember, he was in the U.S. Army and fought in Desert Storm? Sir, we're going in. Well, before that, he had been stationed in Seoul, which meant my dad could have totally been in Itaewon during the 80s. I texted my dad to ask if he had been there, and he said yes. He had been stationed at Yongsan Garrison and spent a ton of time in Itaewon. My dad didn't want to be recorded for the podcast, but he confirmed a lot of details about the neighborhood. Like how people would take items from the army commissary, like Jim Beam whiskey, cigarettes, beef jerky, and sell them to locals off base. He even said once the army got wind of what was happening, they started rationing items. He also confirmed that the neighborhood was self-segregated and said soldiers often referred to the south side of the main street as the DMZ, or the dark man zone. And then he texted me something, something that kind of rocked my world. Apparently, Itaewon is where he met my mom. And not only that, but after they started dating, she became one of those people who smuggled army goods off base. What? After the break, I call my mom. Hi, Ma. Uh, this is my mom. She recently turned 60, but she looks and acts a lot younger. We're talking over Zoom, which I had to help her install remotely because my mom moved to Korea in 2020, right before the pandemic. So my mom and I haven't always had the closest relationship. I didn't live with her growing up, and I pretty much only saw her once a week for 10 years. So I never really got to know her. 
When I was in my 20s, I started actively trying to spend more time with her and got to know her a lot better. But we have a lot of lost time and there's still so much about her that I don't know. Like how she met my dad. So I'm calling her to ask if it's true. If she really did meet him in Itaewon in the 80s. She said yes. And not just that, but she had actually met him the very first night she ever set foot in the neighborhood. I asked my mom why she hadn't mentioned this when I brought up Itaewon the first time. She said she didn't think it was a big deal, like it wasn't worth mentioning. Obviously, I disagreed, so I had my mom start from the very beginning. My mom says she grew up in a small town in South Korea. She was the youngest of three kids. Her dad was a teacher, her mom was a nurse, and she had a pretty idyllic childhood, surrounded by nature. My mom remembers loving music since she was young and listening to her brother's records, which were mostly by Western artists, like Scorpions and ABBA. Eventually, the family moved to Seoul. And when my mom was in her early 20s, she reconnected with an old school friend who suggested they meet up in Itaewon. The friend worked nearby and wanted to go dancing at a club there. So my mom said yes and headed to this neighborhood that she had only previously heard about. My mom says when she first got to Itaewon, she was struck by the sheer number of American servicemen in the streets. She had never seen so many foreigners in one spot before. She says it was obvious the neighborhood was geared towards Americans. Signs were written in English, and clothing stores carried American styles, not Korean ones. And the sizes of the clothes were bigger, too. Eventually, my mom met up with her friend, and they headed to a cafe to kill time before the club opened. The cafe served American food and drinks, like hamburgers and Coca-Cola. And it played American music, like Hotel California by the Eagles. Finally, my mom and her friend headed to one of the popular nightclubs on the main street. Popsong, like American music? My mom says, aside from the foreign patrons, there was nothing particularly different about the club because nightclubs all across South Korea were playing the same Western pop songs. Like this song. A remix of the song Brother Louie by Modern Talking from 1986. My mom says this remix was playing at all the clubs in Seoul at the time. At this point in our conversation, I was still trying to catch up to the fact that my mom went clubbing in her 20s. I just never knew she was into that kind of thing. Like, when Mina said quote-unquote proper Koreans didn't go to Itaewon, I just assumed my mom was one of those proper Koreans. And I think this is a common thing for kids, where they have this one-dimensional view of their parents. Like, I had always thought of my mom as being kind of a passive person, someone who has things happen to her. 
And I couldn't imagine her as this young 20-something-year-old living it up, seeking out fun and exciting experiences. So when my mom said she danced the night away at this club under the blinking neon lights, I had a hard time picturing it. And I was even more surprised when she said that she and her friend danced so much that they basically closed out the club. And by the time they got out, the buses had stopped running. Mm. So my mom's friend, who lived far away, was basically stranded until morning. And the two of them decided to go back to the cafe where they started and wait for sunrise. Eventually, a waitress approached, saying a gentleman at the other end of the cafe wanted to buy them something, like food or dessert. And after a lot of insistence, my mom and her friend accepted the offer and invited the stranger to sit with them. He was Korean, but he had grown up in America and was stationed at the base next door. As their conversation wrapped up, the soldier asked to see my mom again the following week. And before he left... He kissed her on the top of her head. My mom says she was mortified. Her hair and makeup were a mess from dancing and sweating all night. And the whole rest of the week, she couldn't stop thinking about this soldier who had kissed her sweaty forehead. When the following weekend rolled around, she went to the spot my dad had suggested. And they started getting to know each other. So my mom's story makes me realize just how unique a place Itaewon was. Because of its military connection, it allowed two super different people like my parents to meet. And Itaewon in general allowed for a unique cultural exchange between Koreans and Americans that might not have happened otherwise. American music, food, clothing, even lingo. So many cultural influences from the States bled into Seoul through Itaewon. And it was the nature of this neighborhood that allowed a place like Moon Knight to exist. So Itaewon was this really unique juncture of Korean and American culture. But while it can be kind of tempting to think that everything about this cultural exchange was great, things were a lot more complicated. My mom says she often passed by protests on her way to Itaewon on this major road in the Jongno district. And the sign said things like, get out American soldiers. So at the time, there was actually a lot of anti-American sentiment brewing in South Korea. Here's Mina again, the musicologist. The American presence right after Korea's liberation from Japanese rule was perceived as like de facto colonization. According to Mina, some people thought the American military presence was impeding on South Korea's own sovereignty, which was even more complicated because in 1980, you had something called the Gwangju Uprising. The dictator at the time, Chon Doo-hwan, used deadly force against student demonstrators in the city called Gwangju. And angered by the killings, local citizens rose up against the government. And during the uprising, hundreds of South Koreans were killed. Some even say the death toll was much higher, reaching into the thousands. But the massacre sparked outrage all over the country, and more people started turning against the U.S. because they had had operational control of the South Korean military at the time. 
there was this kind of shared idea that American military condoned the use of military force and this mass killing of civilians. While at the same time, there are these American GIs that are rowdy and like doing all these like lawless things, just engaging in like hedonistic activities. So it was this like stark juxtaposition. Because remember, Itaewon was where a lot of American soldiers went to drink and party and even solicit prostitutes who were often local Korean women. So for all these different reasons, student activists began staging demonstrations outside of Itaewon. And they continued for years. Which brings me back to my mom in Seoul in the mid-1980s. My mom says she didn't know much about politics. She hadn't gone to college. After high school, she just started working to help support the family. But in the 80s, protests were so common in Seoul that she would often pass by them on her way to Itaewon. One day, my mom and her friend were heading to the neighborhood to visit my dad when they accidentally got caught in one of the protests. The situation escalated, and police set up barricades to prevent the protesters, who were mostly students, from advancing. The students threw objects at the police or servicemen blocking them. The scene quickly devolved into chaos as law enforcement unleashed tear gas into the crowd. My mom and her friend ran off, choking, coughing, tears and snot running down their faces. Until finally, they made it to a clear area. And after my mom got herself together, she got on a bus and took a different route into Itaewon. So, Itaewon was this complicated place, right? It was directly tied to the American military presence in South Korea during a time of growing anti-American sentiment. But that military presence also brought in American music and culture to South Korea as well, specifically Black American culture and music. And this had been going on for decades. So we see elements of Black popular music right alongside um, Korean popular music going back to Seoul, going back to the 1950s and 1960s. This is Crystal Anderson, author of the book Soul in Seoul, African-American popular music and K-pop. American military presence brought American culture, which was saturated with Black popular culture at the time, not to mention the Black servicemen that were serving in the military and stationed in South Korea. So there were two major ways the military brought Black American culture into South Korea. The first was USO shows. In the 1950s, the United Service Organizations, or USO, would arrange for American performers to entertain troops overseas. So people like Bob Hope and Marilyn Monroe would fly to South Korea to perform for the soldiers there. And these shows got so popular among the troops that demand for them outgrew the number of American performers available. And the USO turned to Korean performers to fill the gap. And these Korean singers learned the repertoire that was popular among American soldiers— 
which included Black American music like this song, What I Say by Ray Charles, which was performed by a group called the Korean Kittens. Here's Crystal again. I saw a video on YouTube. It was a video shot during a USO show in South Korea, and it featured a group called the Korean Kittens. Three Korean women, they've got these uh, flashy outfits on, and they are singing and doing choreography to um, Ray Charles, What You Said. Think about the shots of the audience with all of these male servicemen. But remember, we know that African Americans are pretty well represented in the military. So you have black and white men who are watching these Korean women cover this song by this African American singer. Eventually, these Korean USO performers started performing for Korean audiences, bringing these American acts that were popular among GIs to the rest of South Korea. And so anytime you have the presence of American culture, you also are going to have the presence of African-American culture because the two are really intertwined. So... That was the first major avenue through which Black American music influenced South Korean music, USO shows. The second was a TV and radio network set up by the U.S. military called American Forces Korea Network, or AFKN. AFKN was established in 1953, and it was a real network. It had its own news programs that were run by American servicemen and women in uniform. But the channel played popular American TV shows, too. My dad said when he was stationed in Seoul in the 1980s, AFKN was super important because it was the only way he and other soldiers could watch events like the Super Bowl. And this time he gets in. Touchdown, Los Angeles. But this channel wasn't limited to soldiers on base. It was actually piped directly into Korean homes as well, bringing American TV shows to Korean viewers. And Koreans watched the channel for different reasons. Some were simply entertained by the programs. Others wanted to learn English. And still others watched for the music. Here's Kang again, the dancer who was at Moon Night. Kang says through AFKN, he was introduced to shows like Soul Train, Solid Gold, and Apollo. And that's how he got hooked on hip-hop. And the first song he ever danced to? I Know Corita by Quincy Jones. King quickly became hooked on American-style dance, and he wanted to learn more. But schools in Korea at the time only taught three types of dance. Classical, ballet, and traditional Korean dance. But Kang had heard through the grapevine that American soldiers stationed in different parts of South Korea were teaching nearby Korean locals how to dance. So when he found out about Moon Night, this club where Black American soldiers were dancing to hip-hop... 
he knew he had to go. Eventually, word spread throughout the burgeoning hip-hop dance community that the best dancers in Korea, like Kang, were all at Moon Knight. When I first heard about Moon Knight, I immediately thought of CBGB, that famous club in New York City that had been a hub for legendary punk rock and new wave bands like Blondie and the Ramones. Judy is a punk. In a similar way, Moon Knight was a hub for a ton of early K-pop legends. You had Sotajian Boys, the originators of modern K-pop. You had Kangwonle or Kane, the K-pop dance legend we've heard from throughout this episode. You had another legendary dance duo called Tusu. They were at Moon Knight too. And you had the founders of something called the Big Three, the top three entertainment companies that dominated K-pop in the 90s and 2000s. These three men who were responsible for some of the most iconic and well-known groups in K-pop history, they were all at Moon Knight. And really, the list of famous people just goes on. There were so many 90s K-pop stars that spent time at Moon Knight, soaking up the sound and dance, mingling with Black American GIs who brought all this culture from the States to Seoul. Music and culture that would end up shaping K-pop sound. People forget that hip-hop was at the beginning of K-pop. Without hip-hop, you would not have K-pop. This is Crystal Anderson again, author of the book Soul in Soul, African-American popular music and K-pop. And she says there's a reason why Korean youth loved hip-hop. Because young people everywhere loved it. K-pop, I think, speaks to the global spread of hip-hop in the 1990s. Hip-hop resonated globally, and I think we forget about this. It's the reason why you have hip-hop in France, hip-hop in Britain, hip-hop in, you know, Ghana. It resonated with a particular generation of youth that also resonated with Korean youth. My book talks about the way that K-pop draws on R&B and hip-hop genres of Black popular music. And it talks about it in terms of how authentic it is, so much so that we can consider K-pop to be a global branch of those R&B and hip-hop genres. This question of authenticity is something that comes up a lot when people talk about the influence of Black music on K-pop and where the genre falls on the spectrum of appreciation versus appropriation. Crystal says that not every K-pop group in existence has that authentic connection to Black music. But some groups do. So K-pop gets accused of lacking authenticity when, in fact, I think that they've had authentic interaction with the Black popular music genres all along. My best and favorite examples of this um, is the first generation K-pop group G.O.D., which sounds for Groove Overdose. The first song on their first album has a sample from the Gap Band. The G.O.D. song is literally called Intro. And this is the Gap Band song it samples, called Outstanding. The Gap Band is like a veteran funk band. 
and it's less about knowing who the Gap Band is and more about knowing the place that Outstanding as a Song has in African-American culture. If you've ever been to a Black cookout, at some point somebody is going to put Outstanding on somewhere somewhere so it's that quintessential so it's like you had to choose it knowing what kind of resonance that it had to continue to go back to those very fundamental kinds of grooves and melodies and harmonies I think suggests that there's more to it than mimicry. So I think that these choices are intentional because at the end of the day, Black popular music genres like R&B and hip-hop resonated with Koreans. For Crystal, G.O.D. sampling the Gap Band is evidence of their deep connection to Black American music and culture. And who was G.O.D.'s producer? J.Y.P., one of the big three who hung out at Moon Knight. Moon Knight closed down sometime in the mid-1990s. There isn't a lot of info on what happened, and there aren't a ton of photos or videos of the club either. The only references I could find were from interviews or this one Korean TV show that recreated the club. I honestly thought I would never get to see what Moon Knight looked like, until Mina, the musicologist, pointed out this one music video by Sotejian Boys. The song is called Hayoga, or Anyhow Song, and it's from 1993. I found out the music video of Hayoga was actually filmed at Moon Knight. So you can see the famous fan where only the most talented dancers could stand in front of because the club was so hot. And you can also see the famous checkered board floor. The video actually starts with three young Black American men sitting at the club's bar watching Koreans dance. It's a little hard to hear, but one of the guys says something like, come on, let's go teach these guys how to dance. Which is kind of amazing. Like, it's the exact story of Moon Knight told in like five seconds. And as I watched this video, I was struck with a sense of awe. This is where it all happened. This was where so many K-pop legends spent countless nights hanging out with Black American soldiers and dancing side-by-side with them on that checkerboard floor, developing their tastes in music and dance that would go on to shape an entirely new genre of music, K-pop. As I was thinking about Moon Knight, I realized part of the magic surrounding the club is that it could only exist at this one particular moment in time. And its very existence was the result of so many different geopolitical factors. From the Japanese occupation to the Korean War, which led to a permanent American military presence, which then shaped the identity of Itaewon. All of that led to the formation of this place where Koreans could go to immerse themselves in hip-hop and R&B, this music and culture that would go on to shape K-pop.
이태원을 모르잖아 지금은 그때 이후로는 안 갔으니까. 음. My mom hasn't been to Itaewon since the 80s, and she feels like if she were to go there now, she wouldn't recognize the place because it's changed so much in the years since. In 2018, the U.S. military moved their headquarters out of Seoul to a different city about an hour south, and Itaewon doesn't have the same stigma it once had. Now, it's known for being a hip and diverse neighborhood that's welcoming to foreigners and expats. My mom didn't see the neighborhood change because, in the late 80s, she moved to the U.S. with my dad. And that's where she stayed for the next 30 years. At the end of my conversation with my mom, I still had one question. Did she really smuggle goods from the army commissary and sell them on the black market? (laughs) My mom said yes, but it was a lot less glamorous than it sounds. Basically, a lady in her neighborhood found out she was dating my dad and said if my mom got her things like peanut butter or American cigarettes, she would sell them and then give my mom a cut. But apparently, by the time my mom got involved, The market was oversaturated, and she didn't end up making that much money. It's funny how much one conversation can change your view of a person. Growing up, I had a pretty limited view of my mom. But now, after hearing all these stories, it makes me realize I just wasn't seeing the full picture. Thinking about my mom heading into Itaewon or staying out late dancing or even smuggling items from the U.S. Army base. All of this makes me realize how bold she actually was. And it makes me feel like I'm finally getting to see the real her. (laughs) 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 At one point in our conversation, my mom started laughing. I asked her why, and she said it was fun thinking back on those times. And I said it was fun to listen. K-pop Dreaming is written and hosted by me, Vivian Yoon. The show is a production of Elias Studios. Fiona Ng is our senior producer and show creator. Our producers are James Chow, Minju Park, and me, Vivian Yu. Sophia Paliza-Carr is our editor. This episode is sound designed by Kyle Chang and Parker McDaniels. Gloria Oh is our Korean researcher and translator. Fact-checking by Audrey Regan. Parker McDaniels is our mix engineer. Taylor Kaufman is our director. Original music by Stephen Tran. Our interns are Jens Campbell and Sarah Burnett. Special thanks to Jacqueline Kim, Quincy Sura-Smith, Kang Hyun-gyong, Topher Ruth, and the Berkeley Advanced Media Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. And special thanks to Christina Kala, who produced this episode for Code Switch. It was edited by Leah Danella. I'm Lori Lizarraga. Call your mom. 
Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Numbers that explain the economy. We love them at the Indicator from Planet Money. And on Fridays, we discuss indicators in the news, like job numbers, spending, the cost of food, sometimes all three. So my indicator is about why you might need to bring home more bacon to afford your eggs. I'll be here all week. Wrap up your week and listen to the Indicator podcast from NPR.